Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a really privilege uh, for Virginia and I to be with you this morning, worshiping with you. This is our first time in-person worship since March. Uh, we have, uh, I've done several sermons for our, our home church, but uh, this is the first time in person. I think you're doing a great job. Uh, I feel very safe, uh, so it's really good to be with you. You know, you have a very uh, kind of forceful pastor, a compelling pastor. Uh, I usually tell uh, students, uh, not in the DMIN program that, that Tom is in, but I usually tell them, use your, uh, your preaching voice should be your conversational voice. Don't develop a kind of homiletical voice. Don't talk artificially. Talk real. And... Uh, and then I discovered with Tom that his conversational voice is his preaching voice. Uh, and there's an emphaticness about it, an effectiveness. I think he expends more calorie energy in a conversation than I do all day. Uh, but uh, you've got a very fine pastor, and it's a privilege to preach in a Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. And I'm grateful for your testimony and your witness in Coleman, Alabama, and beyond. Our text this morning is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21. I want to begin there. Listen carefully. This is God's word. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior... But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we turn to you in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of racial tension, in the midst of a a looming recession and depression, in the midst of global instability and great political conflict. Lord God, we turn to you. We center our lives, our thoughts on you and on your gospel. 
And we understand and believe that in each one of those concerns and in many more, you speak into those realities and those conflicts, your word of grace, your word of wisdom. And we ask now, Lord, with this word open, that you by your Holy Spirit would speak to our minds and hearts in a way that compels the transformation that you desire in our lives, in our church, and in the world. We pray this, Lord, in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I know you've been taking large sections of the prophet Isaiah, and uh, I think you did seven chapters last week. I'm suggesting to you that we do two verses this week. He is the one we proclaim. This, to me, is a, a wonderful mission statement for the church. It's been a personal mission statement for me for many years. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them fully mature in Christ. What a, in just in a sentence, what a summation of what we are about. And you'll notice in the New Testament that those summations that crystallize concisely the big concerns that we have are kind of everywhere present. Jesus summarizes it in our mission statement that he gives to us in the commissioning to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And you connect the great commission to the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And you, you put those two together, the great commandment and the great commission. And then the description in the book of Acts of the church, that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And you realize that here, just in four phrases, it captures something of the totality of the church and its mission. And Paul, in Colossians, wonderful description of the church, the church's identity, therefore as God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and goodness and humility and gentleness, bear with one another, forgive whatever grievances you have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I, I just find scripture powerful in summarizing exactly what we are supposed to be about. And Paul does it here. And I'm not usually into alliteration, but here I'm doing it this time. There is a passion for our mission that he expresses and a purpose for our method and a power for our means. And all of that, I think, is concisely placed by Paul him we proclaim. I find it a little easier in English to say, we proclaim him. I don't think Paul is just using a kind of literary we. I don't think he's referring to his mission team, Luke and Silas and Timothy and others. I think he's including the church. We proclaim him. 
And that leads me as a pastor into an acknowledgement and a recognition of the missionary status of the church. The importance of each and everyone's profession, vocation, and labor. That your missionaries out into this culture representing Christ, living for Christ, living into the gospel, and speaking of Christ. Now that word proclaim usually implies in our thinking to a a pulpit and to a room that's large and to an audience or a congregation. That wasn't the word, that wasn't what was in Paul's mind when he used the word proclaim. It was to declare, it was to state, it was to kind of speak like Pastor Tom, it was to effectively speak of Jesus Christ in a compelling way, in a sincere way, in an authentic way. One of the things that I've been encouraged to do as a pastor is to acknowledge the missionaries in the congregation. Uh, That came to me slowly over the years. In Bloomington, Indiana, uh, we hosted a, a midweek Bible study for nurses and doctors And I thought maybe I'd get two or three because of their busy lives. I got a room full of nurses and doctors who I think really were desirous of getting together as a group that shared the same sort of issues and concerns and with the Bible talk about patience, talk about finance, talk about the responsibility that they had in representing Jesus Christ. I look back on that as as a wonderful time. Uh, For three years, I got together with a group of coaches and athletic directors from around the country because somebody had funded uh, a group to get together in order to come up with a Christian declaration on sports. How do you help families that are in sports so they're not overwhelmed by sports and sports becomes an idol? How how do you deal with the impact on a high school student whose identity is wrapped up in sports? And we had three regional uh, meetings together and I think we got a declaration out of it. Articles were written. I think that's good. But really for me personally, I just became much more aware of the dynamics that these people in sports were dealing with and facing as sincere Christians. I learned from them. Not too long ago, a student that's in the Lay Academy um, shared with me personally, not in in class, that uh, when he was going through college, he worked at Publix, and he hated it. He tried to run away from the manager. He tried to make himself uh, as uh, unavailable as possible. Uh, and he just said, I found it humiliating. I, found, I felt like I was being a, a servant, a subservient. And uh, one day he was packing groceries at the counter, and a woman turned to him and said, you don't like working here, do you? And it hit him that his attitude could be seen. (laughs) That how he thought and how he felt, 
was evident. And he, he went home and he said, I broke down. I repented. He said, I realized then that I was just being a horrible Christian witness at the place I worked. And he said, I determined in prayer that night, thankful for the Lord's forgiveness, determined in prayer that night that I would be Christ's representative at Publix. And he said, I made myself available to the manager. And he said, before, when I had the bad attitude, he said, I could, it seemed like that eight-hour shift lasted forever. He said, now I was surprised at how fast the eight-hour shift went. And it wasn't too long, about three weeks, that he was bagging groceries at the counter once again, and another woman looked at him and said, you really like working here, don't you? I think our attitude and what we say and how we think and communicate it on the job has a tremendous impact. Uh, My favorite uncle lives in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, died several years ago, and we were actually traveling, but um, I rented a car and drove to Racine, Wisconsin, because that was one memorial service I didn't want to miss. Uncle Paul had really, he was in publishing children's books. The Golden Books were published in Racine, Wisconsin, and he, for many decades, was involved in that. But at work and in retirement, he was really known as a genuine Christian who took real interest in you. And I had plenty of evidence of that. You could not really have a a conversation with, with Uncle Paul without sensing real concern and a genuineness in conversation. Uh, He illustrates to me what it means to we proclaim Christ. And at the memorial service, I was blown away. There were over a hundred young people in the service because for years, Aunt Bonnie and Uncle Paul had kind of opened their home, had pizza parties, related to young people, followed them in college, just shared life. Life on Life Discipleship. And the eulogies were given by four grandkids. And you could hear a pin drop. And then the pastor got up. Now, usually, I would tell this story to seminarians. Because I don't want you to think I'm down on pastors. But the pastor got up, and he said, Well, now it's my job to tell you the gospel. And I thought to myself, we've been hearing the gospel. We've been hearing the gospel for over 30 minutes. And you could just feel the restlessness in the congregation now. And the teenagers are beginning to turn off and tune out. Luke 15 was his text, the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, well, Uncle Paul must have been lost at some point in his life, and he needed Jesus as his Savior. Well, duh, of course. But that wasn't the totality of Uncle Paul's life, being lost and then being found in Christ. His life grew. And it was a failure of a praying imagination on the part of the pastor not to realize there's three characters in that story. There is the lost son, and then there is the second lost son. The dutiful, knows-how-to-joint elder brother who just made life dutiful. Dutiful. 
But the third character is the loving father. And my uncle Paul had lived his life because of the spirit of Christ, because of the grace of Christ, like the loving father. What you do and how you parent, how you work, how you relate, comes under this phrase, we proclaim him. And the, the purpose then of the method, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we might present everyone, it blows me away. Because in the church, as pastor, you tend to kind of think of, well, yeah, I've got the 10, 20 percent kind of group and then I got sort of the the big middle and then I've got sort of the worrisome 20 percent Paul blows that away everyone fully mature in Christ there is the the first mission in the southwest in the San Diego area mission Alcala uh, is a beautiful garden It's a botanical wonder world. It's glorious. But if you go to the museum section of the mission, you discover that those first pictures of the mission located this structure that you see now in the 21st century in the 1800s in just a desolate wilderness. San Diego would be a desert right up to the ocean. It's irrigation, intentionality, planning that has made it beautiful. But it would be just a desert. And to me, that's an analogy for the intentionality, the purposefulness of building into the body of Christ a flourishing community that is centered on Jesus Christ and centered on his word. A community that prays the Psalms. A community that understands the practicality of the Ten Commandments. A commitment to people being made in the image of God. That black lives matter. And that everyone, Asian, black, Indian, white, needs to be respected as a person that has been made in God's image and a person for whom Christ died. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present them mature in Christ Jesus. And one of the things that we communicate is truth. And that may not that may sound like a great understatement at this point. But I think the Christian community is increasingly becoming unique as a community that believes that there truly is a personal living God. And that personal living God miraculously became incarnate took on human flesh and whose atoning sacrifice makes the way for our reconciliation with God. These are big truths. Not easily grasped in our secular age or in our religious age. I think secularity and religion have combined to make this difficult for us. I remember uh, 
in the 60s when we were in convulsions uh, sexually, racially, militarily. Francis Schaeffer came to Wheaton College. Some of you that are older would know that name. He had a place with his wife Edith in, in Switzerland that was there, Labrie, that was there as a shelter for seekers. Uh, young people coming from all over the world and talking about Jesus Christ and uh, the reality of real truth. And Schaefer came to, to Wheaton and he preached on, lectured on the book of Jeremiah, uh, which became a book, The Death and Death in the City. But one of the things that stands out for me, and this is why I'm sharing it, is he wore a white lab coat for giving those lectures. In order to say symbolically that truth isn't limited to the empirical sciences. It's not mathematical truth and physiological truth and astronomical truth. It, those aren't the only domains of truth. But it's the overarching reality of truth. And he powerfully, I think, uh, communicated that um, in that week. And that's something that we want to do as well. When Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, he kind of summarized, again, this is kind of a one-sentence summation of his ministry. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And some have argued that, well, he had just come from Athens, where he had appealed philosophically with the Athenians, with God the Creator, and then every, when he mentioned resurrection, they... They bolted the, the conversation. And so he came from Athens to Corinth. And some have interpreted this, that, well, that Paul was just going to give him Jesus. Just give him Jesus. Just come to Jesus. I disagree with that. Paul is just giving him Jesus. But if you read the book of Corinthians, the letter to Corinth... When he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then you read the book and you see that every issue confronting the church, unity, leadership, sexual immorality, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, the gifts of the Spirit, every one of those issues, he plants the cross. And you'll find a phrase, like Passover lamb, or you'll find some phrase in which Paul identifies the cross at the center of that. Somebody suggested to me after the first service that I wonder how Paul would plant the cross in the pandemic. I wonder how Paul would plant the cross in our racial tensions. How would the cross be planted in recession and potential depression and the economic and the unemployment situation? Paul had a way of taking the cross and saying, this is the marker that decides how we respond. That we truly have been saved by the redeeming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ for an everlasting life in the presence of God. Now, how shall we live? The passion of our mission, and the purpose of our method, and then finally, the power of our means. Verse 29, Paul says, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy 
that Christ works so powerfully works in me. Now, I'm drawn to that, and I don't think I'm making a big point out of something small. I think it's something big that should be emphasized. We proclaim him. I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in me. And I find in that a plurality of responsibility, a plurality of responsibility. We are in it together to proclaim, to admonish, to teach with all wisdom. We are in it together. But then I see the individuality, the singularity of accountability where Paul owns it. I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I think that combination is really important so that you own the I, own the me, as well as we own the we. And that plurality of responsibility and that singularity of accountability works together. Now, what the practical pastoral application that I make from that is that Paul never obligates people He never browbeats them. He never slaps them up the side of the head to get with it. That's not his modus operandi. He leads by example. He leads by joy. He leads by the compelling power of Christ in him. And that has significance. You're not making people feel small when you preach the gospel. And when you preach the fullness of the Christian life, you're making them people, if anything, a kind of holy envy. I want to be in this. I too want my eye in this dynamic. I think it's really powerful. Ray Binkley uh, was a friend in Toronto. We went to the same church, a Baptist church. I was raised Baptist. Then I became a Presbyterian. And I go back and forth. But um, Ray worked as a Shell Oil executive. One of their top executives in Toronto was responsible for selling technology for the whole country. And he did it very, very effectively, very, very successful. And he said, I didn't get a thing out of the Bible. He said, I went week after week with my family, but he said it was just idealistic platitudes. He said it was just, he said it didn't help me at all. And then he was involved in a very serious car accident. Almost lost his life. And he started rethinking his life. His priorities, his ambitions, his purposes, his intentions, the impact of his life on his family, his impact of his life on the church, and what he really was known for at work. And he changed. And suddenly the Bible took on real meaning for him. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't something he just blew off. It changed the way he related to his colleagues, those that were below him in the organization whom he would have no time for in the past, he made time for now. He respected them. 
The perks that had meant so much to him now meant nothing to him. One of the high points of my ministry was to teach a course with Ray on Christians in business. We did it for our seminary students. I had about 20 seminary students, but we had 44 Torontonian business people, men and women, who were so eager to think Christianly about business. The passion of our mission, the purpose of our method, and the power of our means. I think Paul's laying it out. This is what it means to be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered church. And to that end, we pray that we might live into the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ at Coleman First Baptist I pray, Lord, for their conviction, their commitment. I pray that they would live into their confession and that people's lives would be changed because of your work of grace and the power of your Holy Spirit working in and through them. To that end, we pray in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So great to have you and your sweet wife, Miss Virginia, here with us today. Would you stand to your feet across the room? We're going to have our uh, benediction and offertory here. You're going to notice to my right, your left, these three exits are the ones we're going to utilize uh, at the close of our service as we uh, leave right before the next service comes in. We hope you've had a great week. We hope that uh, you've enjoyed being in the house of the Lord. Such a great message of, of encouragement and, and challenge for us as believers. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Is going to be our benediction today. This comes from the Apostle Paul's writing as well. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We love you.